0: in getting into Congress. I had tried, um, I had run before, I had no experience, no political experience, and I had failed each time. And during these courses in time, when I was not elected to Congress, my mother had Alzheimer's, which we didn't know about, but it was getting worse. And when I finally got elected to Congress in 2020, I thought, well, if I'd been elected when I wanted it, you know, I would have missed being able to care for my mom. I would have missed those times with my mom. And so I firmly believe that God has a plan and a purpose, and it may not always be what we want or what we think we want.
1: Welcome to the Called Forth podcast. This is the place where we help ambitious women of faith to activate and break through the belief structures holding them back. I'm your host, Dawn Town, author of the book, Hashtag More Than Done, speaker, wife, and mama four. I'm going to show you how to go from stuck to called forth while connecting to the full expression of who God has made you to be and make this season your season in your life and your business. I believe God has called you forth from the very beginning and this is your season of awakening and activation. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Called Forth Podcast. I'm truly honored to have on today's show, U.S. Representative, Iowa Congresswoman, Marionette Miller-Meeks. Thank you so much, Marionette, for being on today's episode.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Don.
1: Yeah, so I really just wanted to get started with the show in just asking you a little bit about your life. You've been through so many different things and you've held so many different positions. We can look at the trajectory of your life and see these different positions that you've held, but I know life hasn't always been easy. And I was struck by one piece of your story. You shared that you had suffered a severe kitchen fire when you were in the 10th grade. And it reminded me of a phrase that I've heard, you can either allow life to make you bitter or better. And it sounds like for you, you've allowed it to make you better because you've gone on since then to, you know, Go into some tough arenas, the military and the political realm that you're in now. And I've lo- I'd love for you to just take us back to that moment and how you allowed that very difficult challenge that you faced to make you better and not bitter.
0: Well, hopefully it's inspiring to people. We were a, a society that, you know, really regarded people who overcame circumstances. And we certainly hear that with people that are in the sports arena, the entertainment arena. And then most recently, we've heard that story with Riley Gaines and what she went through in competing against a uh, male uh, in the swimming arena. So my, I am the fourth of eight children. My dad was a master sergeant in the Air Force. He was enlisted. So we traveled around a lot, but we mostly lived in Texas. And I say I grew up outside of San Antonio in a very small town. Um, my mom had a GED, so both my parents worked. I don't remember them not working, quite honestly, Um, So both my parents worked to support the family of eight kids. Um, My parents were very smart, very well read. They read everything. And we would have conversations in the car, in the kitchen. And I would often hear that so-and-so was the boss because they had a college education, but they didn't know anything. So I grew up wanting to go to college. Um, And my parents wanted their children to go to college. They just didn't know how to navigate that. And they didn't have any resources. So when my dad was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, we got out for a snow day. And at eight years old, you know, all of the girls, there were five girls, three boys. We learned to fold the clothes and laundry. And at 10, we learned how to cook. So it was not unusual for us to cook as, um, you know, we had two older brothers who were um, by this time leaving home and graduating high school and they were working. Um, so the girls would all cook. And then we had a younger brother. So it was mo this group of four girls that would be cooking for the family. And because we got out for the show, uh, we had made lunch. And my little brother, uh, who was 11 at the time had missed lunch, came in later in the afternoon and started cooking bacon in a cast iron skillet that we had cooked potatoes. in And it had liver grease and needless to say, I was downstairs. We were in military housing. I smelled something burnt. I went into the kitchen and the, the skillet was on fire. Uh, I put a rug over the skillet to try to dampen it, and it had a lid on it. And um, uh, there was part of the uh, part of flames coming out from where the handle was. And I was trying to move the rug, and that pulled the the skillet off of the stove. And then, uh, you know, the the grease split, and um, you know the the kitchen went up in flames. And so, I I you know left the kitchen. Uh, my little brother and sister were there. Didn't know that any of us were burned. Uh, and went upstairs to tell my sisters to call the fire department and call nine one one, And they did, and it was at that point in time when I was running upstairs that I realized that my legs were burned. And so my younger brother and I were burned. We had um, severe uh, second- and third-degree burns on our legs and on our arms. We had a very long hospitalization. Uh, and burns are extremely painful. It's very painful. Um, to this day, I can... Uh, I can still hear my brother when he'd come back from physical therapy, you know, coming up the elevator, I could hear him screaming and crying. Uh, And I'm sure that he could hear the same thing from me. Um, But she's a wonderful, our physical therapist was a wonderful lady. And prior to that point in time, I had wanted to teach. I thought I would become a teacher, go to college and be a teacher. I love science, love math, love school. And during that hospitalization decided I was gonna become a doctor. So I, I get out of the hospital almost six weeks later tell my parents that I'm going to become a doctor. And uh, they weren't very positive about it. You would think that uh, when you have a child who wants to do something good and positive in their life, that that would be, that would be met with encouragement and you know affirmation. It was just the opposite in my family. Um, there wasn't a lot of encouragement with eight kids. They didn't want to show favoritism to any kids. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of participation or ribbons in my family. Um, and we didn't do any outdoors, you know, any extracurricular activities because there was just no money to do any of that. Um, so I somehow and I don't know how people know this, but uh, my around this point, my dad gets reassigned back to Texas uh, to Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, and I decide I'm going to leave home. I'm going to go to college, start at junior college, work, and I'm going to find a way to put myself through medical school. But somehow I knew being around people discouraging me was not going to allow me to get to where I thought I needed to go. So I left home at 16. I started working at a Dairy Queen, started enrolled in San Antonio Junior College. I had taken courses during my junior year to get additional courses. So I left high school, actually never graduated high school and never thought of that until I entered medical school. And I found a little postcard. Um, in our post office, uh, uh, you know, of this little very small town Costa, Texas, that said that the military would help you with a degree in nursing. And I thought about that. And I said, well, if I went in nursing, I can work at night because nurses have night shift, and I can put myself through medical school. So that's what I planned to do. And so left home, started working, taking courses, uh, enlisted in the army when I was 18. Uh, so I could uh, try to h- get the military to help me get a degree in nursing um, and got a degree in nursing, a master's in education, ended up becoming an officer when I got my degree in nursing. And I just kept working night shift and taking courses in the day uh, until I finally got into medical school. And so I knew that path, um, although it seemed very arduous and difficult, and it was, um, uh, there were times when I wanted to give up, when, times when people would think that that was um, you know, a pipe dream. Um, And it wasn't until I got into medical school that I realized that when I thought my parents were discouraging and dismissive, it's because they thought that the system, the world, wasn't gonna let a poor enlisted man's daughter get into medical school. Hmm. Um, And of course, as a teenager, you think it's just the opposite, you think it's you. And so there have been these times in life where opportunities have presented themselves and you can either take the risk and do it, or you cannot do it, and that can determine what pathway you go. And I think for me, most often, that was God calling to me, and whether or not I listened, whether or not I took that risk, um, you know, d- determined that pathway for me. And it was similar to that in in getting into Congress. I had tried, um, I had run before. I had no experience, no political experience. And I had failed each time and during these courses in time when I was not elected to Congress. My mother had Alzheimer's, which we didn't know about, but it was getting worse. And when I finally got elected to Congress in 2020, I thought, well, if I'd been elected when I wanted it, you know, I would have missed being able to care for my mom. I would have missed those times with my mom. And so I firmly believe that God has a plan and a purpose. And it may not always be what we want or what we think we want. That doesn't prevent us from trying or going down that pathway. But all of these experiences, good and bad, and the and the way I raise my children, is that when you do something right or you succeed or you get a good grade or you get you you do a great routine on the balance beam or you catch a the pass in football or whatever that circumstance may be in life, that you know when things go your way, it builds self esteem and confidence. But when things don't go your way or when you make mistakes and going through those consequences of those, whatever decision you made or whatever happened to you, that's what builds character. And that's how you determine who and what you are. And you can control your response to events that come to you. And so that's how I've raised my children, that Mm -hmm. how you respond to, to negative things in your life, determine who and what you are and truly are your success because you can learn from them as well. And so I think those are, those are things that God calls us to do. It's what my faith tells me. Um, And so I'm not going to say that I'm always hopeful and I'm always positive and optimistic, but I try to be positive and optimistic. And as my children say, I make lemonade out of lemons.
1: (laughs) Wow. There's so much richness that is that you're speaking about your story and just some of the highlights uh, that, come to me in hearing what you share is just you know and you said it in in your response we often wouldn't choose our story if we knew what it was going to entail because we sometimes we want the easy path because it's it's hard to walk through painful things and but the beautiful thing about walking from this perspective of faith is God wastes no season and rather than allowing that experience to leave you in self doubt or fear he he weaved your story in such a way that it made you so resilient that you were able to go into such a tough field like politics with some real grit and resiliency that he knew you were going to need along the way so that's such an encouragement that even when we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, our life story because of how difficult the things may be, God weaves it all together in a way that serves us. Even if when we're walking through it, it feels like a challenge or a struggle. So that's some of what I pulled there, but there was just so much richness in what you shared. And so my next question that I have is, as somebody who's been on a team yourself and you lead teams, What has stood out to you in your journey of leadership in developing your leadership where you've seen it, leadership done well and leadership maybe not not done so well. Is there any highlights or nuggets that you've pulled from both serving under leadership and leading a team yourself?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, and it was a group of high school students that really made me think about this and that is what is a leader? Uh, So often a person that has this position we term a leader uh, but for me, I have a lot of titles. So, you know, you mentioned one. I'm a, I'm a doctor. Uh, I was uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel. Um, I was director of the Department of Public Health. I was a state senator. And now I'm a congresswoman. Those are all titles that doesn't make you a leader. And to me, from my time in the military and my time both in, you know, when I volunteered in nursing and when I was a student nurse and in nursing and then as a physician, a leader is someone who inspires you. They inspire you. They motivate you. They believe in you such that it propels you to reach your highest potential, Um, that encouragement. um, And they they're such a person that you want to follow them. Um, And it's sort of like our journey with Christ in some ways. And that is that. They inspire you to follow them. Uh, And so good leaders and bad leaders. So in the military, you certainly learn the person who comes in and wants to do things their way, and they want to throw out all the other ways without talking to people to find out what worked, what didn't work. Those were some of the worst leaders I had. People who came in, who assessed the environment, who looked around, determined what were strengths and weaknesses, and what were strengths and weaknesses of their team members often were the best leaders. Uh, People who aren't necessarily the smartest person or the most talented but surrounded themselves with people who could fill in those gaps. And it's sort of like the partner you pick in life. You know, my, my husband is far smarter than me, I think. Uh, and we complement each other very well. So we're really partners in trying to elevate each other to be our best selves and, and to reach the potential that, uh, and talents that God's given us. Um, and so I think leaders do that. And so, uh, in Congress, um, and, and we recently had this with a speaker vote, you're looking for a leader who can inspire uh, people, who can bring people along, who can encourage them, um, who will protect their members. Um, and there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, but to me, those are th- the best leaders I've had, have people who I wanted uh, you know, to to help them and to follow them because I thought that the guidance they were giving uh, was ethical, it inspired me, it motivated me to want to work uh, harder than I even thought I could work. Um, and mm-hmm. so those to me are people who are leaders and and I think you know if you if you look at it in a in a godly way, um, Jesus did exactly that. It was you know he led a life through example, knowing how hard it was uh, for people to follow how hard it was, that's why he became man uh, because the struggle, as a human is different than the struggle as a God.
1: Yeah. I love when you're talking about leadership in those terms, because often when we think of leader, we think of people with prestigious titles, but really when you're a mom, you're a leader. When you're a, a, in your job, your your job in your everyday life, you're a leader. So I love that that brings it down to the tangible level of how we can implement leadership in our daily life. And it's not just uh, something that you should always associate with big titles, but it's associated with who you are in the moment right now. So yeah, I, I love that perspective. You're
0: exactly right. It's that It doesn't matter what, what your level is or your title is. Um, in everything that we do, we should do the best that we can. Uh, It doesn't matter when I was, you know, cleaning apartments or cleaning the bathrooms at uh, Dairy Queen or, you know, the uh, roast beef place. I wanted them spotless. I wanted to do the best job that I could uh, because that reflects upon me, who I am and and who God made. And the most important title that we have is mom or dad. The most important thing that we do in life is to raise good children who then go on to be good citizens. There is no more important job that we have on earth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me too of that phrase about being faithful with the little things. And that's so valuable because sometimes we think we, you know, we want the big enchilada, the big thing that we're going after, the big result. But sometimes it's a reflection of how faithful am I being in stewarding what I have in my hands right now? Because it's through stewarding those little things that I feel like we develop the character that we need when we do get to those, uh, you know, more complex stages in life where we're having more and more responsibility along the way. So that's that's such a good key point. My next question for you is what sparked your interest in getting into politics and not only that, what keeps you interested in what I'm sure is a really challenging job at times?
0: So what sparked my interest in getting into politics, um, there were two things. one, um, I had become the uh, I had joined the Iowa Medical Society and I hadn't joined anything. We weren't a family that joined things. Um as I said, we were uh, we were very humble circumstances. we, we didn't join sports or anything like that. And so um, I was in private practice. I had been um, on faculty at the University of Michigan and University of Iowa, and I had our my children's pediatrician wanted me to take their position on the Iowa Medical Society. And so part of that, as um, we go to Congress, both to uh, the state capitol, Des Moines, as well as to Congress in Washington, D.C., to advocate for healthcare initiatives and to advocate for patients, um, and so in doing that, you know, I found that too often the government was putting in regulations and rules that made the practice of medicine, my ability to take care of my patients, and we really saw this during the pandemic. We really saw this during the pandemic, but I had seen this, you know, uh, fifteen years before that, was that it was interfering with my ability to be able to. Uh, have an interaction with my patient. Um, And so, uh, and I felt both when I was a nurse and then when I was a physician that more and more time was spent during paperwork, whether it's paper or electronic health record and, you know, uh, crossing T's and dotting I's and it was actually taking care of patients. And so uh, I decided to run. And um, I also saw that um, with uh, inroads of a, a political party wanted single payer healthcare. And I had looked at single payer healthcare systems. I had been in the military. I'd, I'd been at the VA hospital, and that I felt innovation and cures and uh, and new treatments. You know, this dynamis- dynamism that we have in medicine, innovation, is critically important to move us forward. And when it came to cancer cure rates, treatment of um, immune diseases, that the United States did better than any other country, and that's because of our healthcare system. So um, going to Congress and meeting with Congress people, um, and then my son had done an internship with Senator Grassley. So I was thinking of running for political office. And during my internship, my son uh, was showing us autographs he had of all these senators. And he said, you're really smart, mom. You could be a senator. And then for Christmas, he got me this book by a judge, How to Run for Local Office and Win. And uh, so literally, I read a book. I don't want single payer health care. And I thought that, uh, you know, a um, a President Obama or President Clinton would take us down that pathway. So I literally just decided I would run for Congress without knowing anything and without having any network um, or knowledge. I would run for Congress because I wanted to protect our health care system. Um, and uh, so that's what I did.
1: Well, wow, I love that. It reminds me of this phrase in business I hear often where you see a need, you fill a need. And through your exposure with what you were doing, you saw this specific need and you had the experience to have some solutions and answers that maybe weren't on the table at the time or they just certainly maybe weren't being executed. So that's just kind of what it reminds me of. I love that. that and I think so often in life, we can be complainers versus solution bringers, if that's a, a correct phrase. So I love that what you shared was more, you know, I'm going to be a solution to this problem I see versus just complain about it. I think that's something that more of us can adapt in our life when we see problems and things that we get really frustrated by, as we can, instead of looking at it from this place of, I'm just going to gripe about it, like, no, how can I be a solution or be a voice in the issue or, you know, whatever our specific calling is towards that. But that's kind of what stands out to me with what you shared. Now, I also have a question about what do you love in your job as a congresswoman? What part of it do you really enjoy currently?
0: I'd say the thing I love most is when I'm back in Iowa uh, and I'm able to go around and meet with people and, you know, tour businesses and meet with people who work in that business and share my enthusiasm with what they do and then how it relates to to the rest of the state and the rest of the country, and in fact, to the rest of the world. So how their little piece actually has repercussions far beyond them, uh, and where they think that they are, Uh, whether it's a non, nonprofit or an advocacy group, or, um, you know, a domestic violence, uh, or, uh, you know, it can be a preschool at a church, all of these varieties of people, and then when I get to bring their stories back to Washington D.C. and talk about them on the floor of Congress, that to me is the most joyful thing that I do. Um, mm-hmm. And there are, certainly there are a lot of other things, and and I'm sure other Congress people would uh, would have uh, you know different opinions. But for me to be able to highlight and advocate for our district and for our state, that I think is uh, is you know that's where I get my most joy and my most satisfaction.
1: Mm-hmm. That's so neat to hear that perspective. That actually kind of leads me into my next question. I've heard you reference that as Republicans, you control one half of one third, I believe, of government. So given those small margins, what keeps you encouraged in the process of what might sometimes feel like an uphill battle of trying to get things done, trying to get things passed, trying to bring highlights and, and solutions to these these issues. When you go back to Iowa and you hear the constituents speak, you know what keeps you encouraged in the process
0: Yeah, so I think it's one of the things that when you have a majority, people think you can do whatever you want. But um, we have, you know, a constitutional republic, we have three branches of government. So anytime that I I can reassert Congress as a co-equal branch of government and diminish the role of the executive branch, which is the administration, and it doesn't matter of what party the president is, Congress has ceded too much of its authority to the uh, executive branch. And I think so when we pass laws, I think one of the things that gets discouraging is that if it doesn't pass through the Senate and get signed by the president, people don't know what we're doing in Congress. Mm. So making sure that people know, you know, we passed a border bill with strict border protections. Uh, We passed an energy bill so that we can increase domestic energy production which, because people are struggling right now, being able to afford to put gas in their car, to be able to put food on their table, and sixty percent of the cost of food is energy. Um, you know, prescription drugs. I'm working very uh, diligently and have several bills on trying to get at lowering the uh, cost of prescription drugs. So when when we can make in small inroads, you know, I feel encouraged by that. And it may not always get passed by the Senate or the President. But one of them is going to get through. So you keep you have to keep grinding away at it. You have to keep pushing at it. And then you have to try to make sure that people in your district and your state and the country know what it is that you're doing. Because Mm -hmm. until it's signed into law, they don't necessarily know what you're working on. Um, You think that they know because you think it's carried in the in the press, but they don't always know all of the things you've done. I mean, we passed a bill for parents bill of rights. Um, I've been on bills with Senator Tim Scott on. educational choice since I got elected in Congress in 2021, uh, even before the governor passed her uh, educational uh, savings accounts, Governor Reynolds, that is, in Iowa. Um, and so, you know, we passed uh, uh, a bill protecting girls uh, in girls sports. Uh, and people don't know that we've done those things if they don't pass uh, pass through the Senate uh, and the, uh, the president signed them into law. But we have had, even though we're only you know, one half of one third of the government, we have had things that have passed that the president has signed into law. I mean, our debt limit negotiations, the president started out this year saying uh, that he would not negotiate, that there would be a clean debt limit increase. This was left over from Speaker Pelosi um, and uh, Senator Schumer, a Democrat in the Senate was saying the same thing, but we were able to pass a limit save grow bill to get them to the negotiating table and in uh, in the uh, debt limit bill, we were able to get uh, environmental permitting reform. So for building, for construction, for infrastructure, roads, bridges, all of that stuff. Um, we were able to get uh, work requirements uh, if you're receiving welfare benefits because there is a dignity to work. That's how you build self-esteem. That's how you create wealth. We all have to start somewhere. And there should be no excuse if you're able-bodied for not working. Um, you know, unless you're raising kid, you're able-bodied raising children under six or a dependent adult. Um, we we got rid of the pause on student loan repayment, and that was huge because, as we know, the Supreme Court later um, uh, said that you couldn't have loan forgiveness. And had we just prohibited. Uh, loan forget, student loan forgiveness, then the president would have continued the pause. So these were all wins that we made for the American people, for the average person, the average hardworking family, that we were able to reduce some of the government spending that's led to inflation and work on things that uh, will ultimately be able to bring costs down and also bring our deficit and debt down. So I continue to strive and it's sort of like my life story. You don't always get everything you want right when you want it. But you got to keep going, you, you know, you got to persevere, you got to be tenacious, you got to hang in there and you got to be a happy warrior doing it. So most of the time I'm smiling, and I'm happy. Not always, not always. Um, uh, but uh, I think that persistence pays off uh, and being a happy warrior pays off, too. Mm.
1: I love that you shared all of those pieces of what you've done and what's been done over the course of the last few years. And it really speaks to, I think, the importance now in this time in our lives that it's so important to pay attention to politics, even though it seems like years ago, you didn't really have to pay attention at the level you do now, given the, the critical hour that I think we're in. And it reminds me of part of what I long to do with this podcast called Forth is to highlight stories and issues in a way that people don't feel so overwhelmed by the big headlines that they just disengage or they don't pay attention. It's it's kind of my heart's desire to see people passionate about um, having a deeper conversation because sometimes when it's ta- when cultural and political issues or conversations come about, it's easy to get hung up on a headline and get really emotionally worked up and really do a disservice to the actual substantive deeper issue that kind of goes on behind the headlines. And so if, politics or culture doesn't feel like the average person's realm. Sometimes it feels like I don't know if I'm educated enough to talk about this or that. But the truth is, I feel like in so many ways, you know, our public town halls of Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and and X, Twitter now X, have been left to so many far fringe left voices and not enough conservative voices have come up to bring awareness to issues. And there, especially, you know, back in 2020, there was so much worry about cancel culture or saying the wrong thing or not getting it right. So people, I think, especially on the conservative side, shied away from, you know, the average everyday American shied away from saying too much because of all of this fear. But I feel like with what we lived through over the last few years, there's now more of a need than ever for people that have conservative beliefs to speak up and say, say something that way. the other conservatives in the room can know that they're not alone. And so what do you feel like comes to mind as I talk about that from the sense of how important you think it is for the average everyday American to pay attention to what's going on and be a voice of conservative and rather than run from these controversial topics, we run to these controversial conversations with a faith-filled perspective and with the conservative common sense values.
0: Well, first and foremost, I think, you know, when you're able to travel the world and meet people and I have tremendous respect for people, for languages, for different cultures. But I also feel that our system of government in the United States, you know, our constitutional, are ruled uh, by law. Uh, and I know it's not perfect. Uh, I, I, you know, believe me, I know that there are people that should be held accountable for things that they've done uh, and they're not. So it's not a perfect system. Uh, I understand that. Uh, but. This system of government, of markets, of capitalism, of rule by law has allowed this nation uh, to become, to be extremely prosperous. And that means us individually to be prosperous as well. And so, but it's so fragile. And I think Ronald Reagan said that best when he said we're one generation away uh, from, you know, losing uh, free speech, freedom of association, uh, private property rights, um, Second Amendment rights, these things that were guaranteed in our uh, Constitution uh, that allow us to be a prosperous nation, that allow us to pursue happiness, uh, that, um, you know, that um, meritocracy and the individual, the importance of the individual within a team, the importance of the nuclear family, you know, uh, our uh, ability to practice our religion, I mean, uh, you know, when the Affordable, I spoke a lot about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, because of the provisions it had, which denied people the right to practice their religion. We saw that with Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, and so to I think if we don't have those voices, it's a vacuum. And that's what you see on college campuses. On one hand, they say they're teaching critical thinking. But if you only give one variations of one point of view, then you don't develop critical thinking. So I think having the courage to have those voices and then hear other people, uh, there has been censorship. Um, and you know there's speech I don't like. Uh, I never liked people burning the American flag, especially as a veteran. But at the same point in time, I served in the military to defend your right to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, right now we have a, a court that uh, looks at the constitution as a, a constitution, not a living document that needs to be changed with the whims of of the culture at the time. Uh, And I think it's important for people to speak out. I think these rights that we have, these liberties that we have, what we cherish, it's not like that all over the world. And it's very possible to be able to lose those. And so I think that's why it's important for people to speak out. That's why it's important for people to be engaged. And what's difficult now is to know, know, the information you're getting, is it true? And I think that's extremely difficult. Even for me, it's challenging to know of something I'm reading on social media, is it true? Do I trust the source? And even if I trust the source, are the information is the information they're giving me true? And so I think sometimes you have to go to a variety of different sources. Um, and then with your Congress people, uh, rather than being quick uh, to get angry about what they're doing, ask them why they did what they did or why they voted what they voted, or let them know of something. They may not know of something that you've read Um, So make them aware uh, so that they can look into that as well, too, Uh, so that there's this um, accessibility and this, um, you know, dialogue that goes in between um, your congressperson or your elected leader who's there to serve you and you. Um, And so I think that that interaction, that interchange is very important. It's why I've never changed my phone number and I haven't changed my email. Now, sometimes I wish I would have. Um, but I, I think it's important for be for people to be able to have this interchange and dialogue and conversation with their elected leaders.
1: You brought up such an interesting point of the, you know, and it speaks back to remaining educated and engaged in what's going on and and to what you said about knowing that you're getting information from trusted sources. I think that's just another piece in the puzzle that we have to really pay attention to in the, in this era is yeah, making sure you're getting accurate news. And, and also I, I think making sure that the, you get the full scope of the story because sometimes you hear a snippet of something or you hear see a headline and you automatically start drawing conclusions. But it's that personal responsibility, I feel like then to do a little bit of digging that we all need to do and have when we hear the stories and the things that get us emotionally charged and worked up. So kind of what I want to move into is switching gears just a little bit. I'm just really fascinated by how much information you have to stay on top of in order to speak articulately in the job that you have. For anyone listening, part of the job is you have to absorb information, but there's a very big difference in absorbing information versus articulating it. So how do you stay uh, up to date on all of the wide variety of issues that you really need to have working knowledge of to be able to speak to when you're talking to Iowans in Iowa, or whether you're on the House floor speaking in Washington?
0: Well, uh, one of the ways to do that is I read a lot. Uh, so um, I'll uh, read in the Wall Street Journal. I, I find for me, that's one of uh, a source that I uh, I feel that I can trust, but I'll uh, read a wide variety of information. We'll have classified briefings. We go to the classified briefings. I'll talk to other members of Congress and get their opinion and their insight because they have areas of expertise that I do not have. So when it comes to financial services, I'll talk with Representative Andy Barr or um, uh, or Patrick McHenry, um, you know, and uh, because they just, they have knowledge and information that I don't have. And then also meeting with people. So meeting with groups of individuals from your state, uh, relying upon them. So when there are, sometimes there are bills that come up and I'll call back to Iowa, to people in Iowa, if it's their business or if it's their, Uh, nonprofit, I'll call for information or to, you know, Iowa State or to the University of Iowa, even though Iowa State's not in my district, um, they have engineering uh, courses there. So I'll call back to people in Iowa to get information from them. How would this bill affect them? Can they tell me, you know, if I'm hearing this uh, from somebody else, you know, what's their opinion of that? Um, And so I think you have to reach out to a variety of sources. Remember that people within your state are experts uh, as well and they are, they're a resource but then you utilize the resources that you have available in Congress. Sometimes that's agencies, sometimes that's uh, directors or deputy directors or people within the military or people at the VA system because I'm on the VA committee but I think you know you have to you have to try to get as much information as you can and then your staff also assist you with that. Um, And so you you hire a good staff. And if you're not getting the right information from your staff, then you have to let those people go because um, you're so busy that you can't read every single thing. It was like, just before this, I was reading the bills that we have coming up uh, uh, today that we're gonna be voting on. So I was reading through our appropriations bills um, that we had. So so it's a challenge, uh, but you've got staff, you've got experts uh, within your district, Uh, and then, um, you know, you have businesses, nonprofits, and then you have people in Washington, DC that you're going to utilize in order to get information.
1: Mm. Well, I just, you know, I want to end on one more question. I want to respect your time and I greatly appreciate the time that you've given me today to share just the wealth of information that I know the audience is going to get gleaned so much from. So my last question for you is how has faith played a pivotal role in your life?
0: Um, I would say without faith, I w- I wouldn't be here.
1: Uh,
0: life is difficult, um, and I think sometimes when we see people that are pleasant or happy or smiling, we think, and I and I experience this with my patients a lot. And I said people must think you have had an easy life because they'll tell me something in their life, and they'll say that's true. And I think that my faith has allowed me to be hopeful. Uh, to persevere, uh, to know that, um, you know, there may be a silver lining later on, or it might not be my time. Um, And so I think for me, my faith has allowed me to have the success that I have. And the success isn't the position or money. It's that journey that you go through. So this is this fulfilling your potential, thinking that, You are where God wants you to be at a particular point in time. Um, And so from that standpoint, and then picking a good partner, 100% uh, was someone I was attracted to, but my mother didn't particularly want me to marry the person I married, but they were the best partner I could have ever chosen. Um, And one that allowed me to practice my faith. They weren't Catholic. They were Baptists. Uh, and they joined me in my faith, and we raised our children Catholic. So that person was a good partner for me. Uh, so making those decisions in uh, in life as you go along, I think my faith has, um, you know, has have played for me has played in a very important role.
1: Well, I don't think we could have ended on a better note than a a question and a conversation around faith. So I just want to thank you so much for being on today's show. You've been a wealth of wisdom, and I'm excited for the Called Forth audience to hear this story. So thank you so much.
0: Well, I'm going to thank you for doing this and doing this podcast uh, and how very important it is that you're able to get these messages out to people and into your audience. And so I really thank you for doing it and being there for all of us.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, that is all for this week's episode of the Called Forth podcast. Until next time. That's all we've got for this episode of the Called Forth podcast. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in to listen. Also, make sure to link up with us at www.downtown.com. That's D-A-W-N-T-O-W-N-E.com. And on social media. And please just share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it until next time. Remember you have been called forth.